There are certain things in life that we just know to be true. Apple trees are going to grow apples, and school hallways are going to have bullies. My middle school had some of those. We weren't, I wouldn't say we were one of those schools that had a, you know, a bully waiting around every corner to punch you or anything, but there were some folks over the years who liked to wield their uh, dominance a little bit. Looking back now, I can see a lot of those people had issues at home, and they were projecting that anger, but it really was not fun to be the one who was on the receiving end of that anger. It was horrible. And I remember one guy in particular, uh, ironically, when I think back to this dude, I don't remember him being a particularly awful person, but I think when he was in an unhealthy spot at home, he would just come to school and make the rest of us miserable. And as you can imagine, I tried to steer clear of this guy. I was an awkward, chubby, 13-year-old kid, and I just tried to keep to myself and make sure things were fine. But one day, in between passing period, or during the passing period, I was walking from the bathroom back towards my locker, and I crashed into this guy. And I immediately think, oh gosh. And I thought, I just need to apologize and, and, and keep going. And so I did. I apologized. Man, I'm so sorry. And I just kept going down the hallway. And I thought, maybe I'm good. And about the time I thought I was good, I felt a severe pain in the middle of my back. I was face down in the hall and my books were everywhere. And I'm laying face down thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to turn over and face the rest of this kid's wrath. And I, I had no advantage at this point. I'm flat on the ground. He's already, at the, he's a little bigger than me. I'm like, oh no. And right about the time I was going to give up hope, I heard the voice of the principal, Mr. Parker. And he yelled at this kid and said, come here. And he took the kid and he marched him on up the hall into the office. I got up, my back's throbbing. I get my books. I'm like limping to my locker. And I get there and I'm trying to compose myself, putting my stuff away. And Mr. Parker arrives at my locker, starts asking me questions. Uh, I'm already pretty embarrassed at this point. I'm physically in pain. And he starts asking me questions. Hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of downplaying it. I'm pretty embarrassed at this stage, even though this kid was older than me. And he made it clear he was well aware of the things that this guy had been up to that me and many other students probably thought he was just getting away with all the time because he was kind of a punk kid. And he said, this is going to be dealt with and this is going to stop. And I can promise you that, Mike, this is going to stop. And to Mr. Parker's credit and the credit of the bully, whatever was done to uh, make that a, to bring justice to that situation. That guy never messed with me. I never saw him mess with anybody else. Thank God I grew several inches and I don't think that guy ever did. So I never practically had to worry about him anyway, but it, it was just this instance where it was so refreshing to see a principal who happened to be right there standing in just the right spot next to this classroom where I just got kicked. I was later told this kid ran, jumped with both feet and kicked me in the back. And the principal was right there to deal with it. And even though the timing may have seemed a little late, and I would have much preferred this guy have gotten busted before he came after me, but that's not how it worked out. But justice was served. It, it was served. It just wasn't as quick as I'd have loved for it to have been. And we have that struggle a lot. As we're walking through this book of Habakkuk, that's a lot of the struggle is, okay, God, you say justice is coming. Why does it seem like it's so slow? Why does it seem like it's so slow? 
In Habakkuk 2, that's what he's wrestling with. He's saying, God, how are all of us who are trying to stay faithful, is little remnant supposed to be faithful to you when our nation's falling apart? And God, how's your reputation gonna hold up if we fall apart? Because we're your people. What's that gonna look like? Well, that's, that's what we're gonna look at today. And so uh, I'll pray over our time. We'll dive in and we'll pick right up where we kind of left off last week, okay? Jesus, we come God, I have a restlessness in my spirit today. I don't know where that's uh, coming from. I know you can use that for good either way, so I, I hand that to you. God, we all come to you with whatever is on our minds coming off of last week. I ask that Habakkuk's struggle and how you met him in that will be where you meet us today in our struggle, the questions we're asking. Lord, this book is teaching us to lament. It's, it's teaching us to turn to you, complain to you, ask the tough questions, and respond in trust and worship. I pray today you'll bring us a little closer to being able to do that well, even though it's not something that most of us do very well on our own. So Father, we do this by your power. We ask you to speak. Holy Spirit, I pray you to be active. We rebuke the enemy and any attempt he's gonna make to come at us today. And in your name we pray, amen. All right, if you wouldn't mind flipping to Habakkuk 2, starting with verse 2 that Connor read just a minute ago. We're going to be in the CSB. Uh, you can go hard copy. You can look on screen. If you are online, you can go to insidescc.org, click on Take Sermon Notes, and boom, it's right there, all for you. So I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's been a lot of fun with this series as Craig kicked off the first couple weeks. Uh, we had last week. Now this is week four out of five, so next week we'll wrap this up. To give you a fast flyover of where we've been, if you haven't been with us, all right? So here's a map of where this has taken place in the world. Uh, you, some of you saw this last week. We've got the people of Judah in Jerusalem. You got the red dot right there next to the Mediterranean Sea. And Habakkuk is dealing with all kinds of stuff going on there. He's a prophet for that land. But the big bully, the Babylonians, who are right over there, you can see the capital city of Babylon uh, to the east, they are raising up in power and they are an impending threat. All right, so here's the challenge that Habakkuk has. We're gonna jump to this next picture here. And that is that uh, Habakkuk, he, he's watching all this injustice and idolatry in his own land. It's the final decades of his kingdom. It's about to fall. They see this impending threat of Babylon. And Habakkuk, to his credit, he doesn't accuse Israel per se. He just talks to God. And he's addressing God with the struggle, saying, God, are you really good if there's so much evil in the world? And he's lamenting. He sees injustice and he's saying, God, look at this. God, look at this. Draw your attention to this. And so, so far, he's offered two complaints. The first complaint was this. Uh, Habakkuk came, and we'll jump to the second is He says, God, how long? I might have to cry out that you won't listen when no one's following your word. The Torah is neglected. There's violence. There's injustice. Our leaders are corrupt. And God says in response, oh, well, I'm raising up the Babylonians uh, to come and dish out the justice. Well, that brought Habakkuk to his second complaint that we followed last week. He's like, what? Babylon, they're worse than Israel is. They, they, they've deified their own power. They treat all of us human beings like we're a bunch of animals. They devour other nations. But then he ended with, God, I'm gonna stand watch and I'm gonna wait for you to respond to me. Like a parent on a front porch looking for a tornado in the summertime. He's waiting. God, respond to me. I'm confident you will. And verse two, that's exactly what he gets. Because it says, the Lord answered me. Write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on the tablet so that one may easily read it. 
For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. So look at this little picture of Habakkuk writing on these tablets, okay? Here he is inscribing these. This is an artist representation, obviously. And he's pressed pause. He's waiting for God in the watchtower. And if you grew up in church, you know when you hear tablets, you might think Moses, Ten Commandments. That's maybe where your brain goes. Well, that's kind of the same thing. God says, I want this vision to be written so clear and so legible and so permanently that people cannot miss what it is. He's essentially saying, put it on a billboard so everybody sees it plain as day. If it was modern day, I think the Lord would have put this and it would have put the little Geico gecko right there next to this inscription. Would have been on every billboard. And Paul later in Romans would say, what's the purpose of this? Well, faith comes from hearing and hearing comes through the word of Christ. So if folks are going to stay faithful to God's word, well, they got to hear the word first. If they're going to hear it, they've got to see it plainly. God says, make this plain. And what's so important about it? Well, God says, this is crucial for the future because this message that I'm going to give you, it's going to preserve you. This message is going to get you through the tough times. You can trust it because it's from me and I don't lie. And what Habakkuk is going to write down and pass on to the people, it's going to come true in God's time. Now there's a word there, and it literally basically says the vision is panting, or the vision is longing to have its time come true. It's almost like a thirsty dog that comes running up to you for its bowl to be refilled for water. This vision just can't wait to come true. And it's going to take a while, but when it does arrive, it's going to hurt, but justice is going to come. Now, we got to pause just a second because a question a lot of us ask all the time in self-assessing where we're at in our walk with Jesus is, well, how strong is my faith? When we look at Habakkuk, it, it shows that the real question a lot of us need to be asking if we want to know how strong is our faith is, how well do you wait? If you want to know how strong your faith is, you need to be asking yourself, how well do I wait? Are you patient when you're waiting on God to respond? So chew on that. Have that in the back of your head as we're going through here, okay? Because I've had that all week nibbling on me. (laughs) Verse 4, God continues, and he starts talking about these Babylonians now. He says, look, his ego's inflated. He's without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. And moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he's never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. God says, hang on a second, Habakkuk. I'm very aware of how evil and rotten these folks are. These Babylonians are are not good people, these puffed up guys. And their leader was King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I had a friend in college, when he and his wife were pregnant with their first son, he said, babe, I really want to name him Nebuchadnezzar because we can call him Chad for short. And his wife was like, heck no. So they named him Hezekiah, and they call him Hez for short, okay? So anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar, he's this bad guy, and it says wine betrays. Well, because this guy is drunk on power, he's drunk on wealth, he's drunk on his military might, His only goal is his own pleasure. He doesn't trust in God because where's his trust? It's in himself. It's in his own kingdom. And he thinks he's ultimate, invincible, untouchable. You notice it says here, it says, he enlarges his appetite like Sheol and like death he's never satisfied. Well, in the Old Testament, Sheol was like this spiritual place where the dead went after they passed away and it never could fill up. 
So he says, Nebuchadnezzar's appetite to fill his own desires and pleasures, it's as hungry as Sheol, it could never fill up. So his appetite's never gonna fill. He can never get enough. The more he takes, the more he wants. This dude has no self-control. It's a pretty ugly picture of this Babylonian king. But did you catch verse four? It presented a very different character than the Babylonians. It was just one little statement. And it said, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Now that character contrasts completely with Nebuchadnezzar. And this little statement, the righteous one will live by his faith, it is echoed three different times in the New Testament to paint a picture of what faith looks like. It's that the righteous person, they live in good standing with God. They trust God. And it doesn't matter what their circumstances are. They remember their ultimate aim isn't wealth. It isn't pleasure. It's not getting what they want. The ultimate aim is what? Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And circumstances don't alter that. It's interesting because we're reading about faith 2,600 years ago, but faith then in like the 7th century AD for Habakkuk, it meant they were still under this old covenant and God had promised, I'm going to have a permanent solution for this sin. It's coming, you got to wait for it. And they had to wait almost another like 600 years for Jesus to show up on the scene. But here we are 2,000 years on this side of the cross. And Jesus has already done a lot. He has already come and sacrificed for us. He has already risen from the grave and defeated death. He has already reconciled us to God and granted us eternal life. And he has sent us the Holy Spirit as a deposit to help get us through until he comes back again. God promised Jesus would come. And he did. And Jesus promised he'd come back, and he will. And when he comes back, two things are going to happen. Wrong is going to be eradicated, and right is going to be vindicated. And we can count on that. That's where our hope can be anchored. My favorite Disney film when I was a kid was Robin Hood. We got a little snapshot of the the picture here. And it's such a good story. I think it celebrates its 50th anniversary next year, actually. So watch for the commemorative Blu-ray or download, whatever. And I loved this because it's this town of Nottingham that is broken and there's corruption under the goofy Prince John and that little snake dude, what's his name, Hiss, you know, that's his right-hand man. And it's interesting because one minute they're kind of laughing at the folly of the bad leadership, oodalali, oodalali, golly, what a day. But the next minute, you got the minstrel rooster sitting there. Every town has its ups and downs. You, you know this, right? Sometimes ups outnumber the downs, but not in Nottingham. And it's just these songs of lament, the, this dirge, and they're, they're kind of grappling with this. And what's the hope that they're looking forward to? This whole show, they're waiting for King Richard, the lion, to come back and make things right. And he eventually comes back, probably a little later than they wanted, but he comes back and he makes things right. Now you can argue about the accuracy of the historical representation and how good of a guy King Richard actually was, but I digress. It's an awesome movie. Probably gonna go home this afternoon and watch it, actually. (laughs) That's how it is for Jesus. We're just, we're waiting on his return. He's like King Richard. So I would ask, which way would you choose? There's two different ways that were portrayed here in verse four and five. There's the way of being puffed up, arrogant, and self-centric, and then there's the way of being faithful, being all about what God is up to, even when you can't see what's coming and your circumstances are rotten. So which way would you choose? The puffed up way 
or the righteous faithful way. This is the second complaint. So we'll give a little synopsis here. Let's throw up this picture. So he, he makes his complaint here, and let's throw the answer up there real quick. Let's jump to the next one. God says, oh, yeah, here's the deal. I'm going to bring Babylon down. Yeah, I might use a corrupt kingdom to do it, but I'm not endorsing them and who they are. I'm going to hold every nation, you guys, them, every other nation in the world, accountable. And it's going to come at an appointed time. And until that time comes, all the righteous are going to live by their faith. And now, this is an interesting little section here, because God starts laying out a bunch of things called woes against Babylon. Uh, I don't know if we really have a parallel in our culture, to be honest. Uh, A woe typically is something that was stated to prepare the way for judgment that would be spoken on the backside of it. Uh, It was kind of like an interjection meant to get someone's attention. Uh, In Hebrew, the word was hoy, and the English translation would be something like, hey, wake up! That's what it basically was. And so the woes are going to call out Babylon's sin, and it's going to kind of give words to God's people. Like, your oppressors, you can taunt them with this, because this is truth. If you say these things I'm going to say and you pass them back, this is true about your enemy. And they can be tough to understand, but I want, I want you to hang in there. This is one of the toughest genres to read in our world. We don't have a lot of people walking around. We don't have a a specific prophet in Shelbyville who's prophesying each week. So some of the language and stuff is tough. But I tell you, if you will hang in there, one, it's going to help you when you read this stuff in the future. And two, there is so much hope tucked in this. It speaks volumes about the world we live in and how God deals with brokenness. Okay? So here is the first woe, starting with verse 6. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles? They'll say, woe to him who amasses what's not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake them up? Then you'll become spoiled for them. Since you've plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. So God says, all those plunderers, they're going to be plundered themselves. Babylon's piled up all these goods, they've killed all these people, they've sinned, and ultimately, they didn't just sin against me and against you, they've sinned against the earth. Everything I created, they've sinned against it. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you owe a debt. When the creditor comes to collect, it's going to take everything you have, because your wealth wasn't yours in the first place, and it's not going to be yours in the long run. And God is clearly showing, if you live by the way of power, there's always a consequence to that. There's always a consequence when you live by the way of power. You're going to die by it eventually. And that was a common way of thinking in Habakkuk's world. It's a common way of thinking in our world. And God says, no, no. If your wealth and your power is is built on injustice, it's going to eventually undo you. And the second woe falls right in line with that. Check out verse 9. It says, woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. You've planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. God says there's going to be a price that's going to be paid because you went off and you tried to be like a bird and build your nest way up high where it was safe. Now, and I think it was the second week of this series when Pastor Craig was preaching God compared Babylon to a certain bird. You remember what bird it was? It was a vulture. Now, it's one thing for a vulture to act like a vulture and eat other things. But the Lord's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Human beings are not vultures. 
Babylonians, you shouldn't be going and praying on other people. That, that's not what you were made to do. But you've gone and you've built this nest and you've put this trust on thinking if I get enough power, enough wealth, enough control, then I'm gonna be safe. In my house, there's this old farm shop that was built 40 years ago. And it has these massive sliding doors on each side of it. And the doors hang from a track mounted to the top front of the building. And the worst bird in the world to me is starlings. They're gross. They poop on everything. They build nests everywhere. They can't keep their eggs in their nest. Their babies just are dying all over the concrete. It's terrible. But they love to look at these tracks and think, that looks like a safe, warm little spot for my nest. And it's nice and high. My cats, our barn cats can't get up to them. And they build these nests and it looks like a safe spot. But before long, we have to get in the shop. We have to get a tractor or a lawnmower. And as soon as that door goes sliding, the starlings get smashed. Doesn't work out for them. And that's the picture God's painting of these Babylonians. You thought you were safe, you're not. And God says, you've planned this for yourself. What you thought would be your glory is gonna be your shame. And did you catch what he said in verse 11? For the stones will cry out from the wall. The rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Well, in our culture, we might say, if these walls could talk. It's a common phrase. If say, imagine what these walls have seen. And God says, yeah, well, Nebuchadnezzar, if your walls could talk, they'd start chiming in and they could witness really well about every crime you've committed, every wrong you've done. And it's not a pretty picture. So these first two woes, God's saying, Babylon, you're going to get taunted for stealing from other people, for hoarding wealth, and coveting things that weren't yours. And it's ironic. Professor John Curid put it this way. He said, when you worship something other than God, the object you worship tends to turn on you and destroy you. And that's what's going to happen. Now, you think about the history of the world. Thousands of years. So many nations have been guilty of this. It's not just Babylon. This isn't unique. This isn't new. It's not how God created us to operate. And God is calling it out, saying, no, not okay. Which brings us to woe number three. It says, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. It's not from the, is it not from the Lord of armies that the people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea says, well, if, if bloodshed of other people and injustice are the foundation for your empire, eventually things are going to crumble. And he says, it's not just the people that you enslaved that you sinned against. You've turned people into a commodity. People are not commodities. People are created in the image of God. He says, you've sinned against God, against Yahweh, against the Lord of armies. The bully picked on the one person he shouldn't have picked on. And all of the wrongs they committed, it's just fueling this fire that's eventually going to burn them up. It's going to backdraft on them. And who gets the glory in the end? God does. People are going to see, you know, the real power and the real glory. It wasn't these Babylonians. It, it, it was God. And, and his glory is going to be so widespread, it's like the oceans flooding over the earth. So to summarize this woe, if you rely on murder, immorality, and slavery, it's not going to set you up for success. How many kingpins and drug lords have we seen find that out? You maybe heard of Pablo Escobar, the famous Colombian drug lord. That guy's been dead almost 30 years, and his sins still haunt his country to this day. 
So, man, these woes, they're stacking up. Babylon, this is not pretty. We got two more. We're kind of just flying over here. Here's woe four. It says, woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and exposure and expose your circumcision. The cup in the Lord's hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory for your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. This picture is supposed to shake everybody to their core when they read it. So you're going, wow, people are getting drunk and then they're just hung out to dry naked. It's a stark image. It's saying, this is what the Babylonians have done. They think, man, so much pleasure. And actually God says, you're naked, you're exposed. What's being served in that little red solo cup, Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, it's anger, it's wrath. You really thought you could get everybody drunk on your power and your wealth and do whatever you wanted, taking their stuff, sexual sin. But look who's gonna intervene. Did you catch who the cup, whose hand it's gonna be in? It's not gonna be in Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This cup is gonna be in God's hand. And when it's his anger and wrath that comes from goodness, what does that accomplish? Justice. And for the Babylonians, when they drink that, it might as well be a laxative because it's gonna clean Nebuchadnezzar and his goons out. Did you catch, this is key, easy to overlook this. There was one land it mentioned in particular. Do you see what it was? Lebanon. Now, some of y'all maybe know about Lebanon. You two back in the day had a song called uh, uh, about Lebanon and the forest of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. It was famous for its cedar trees. In modern day, people are trying to restore these forests. It was a forest of renown. And it says this is a terrible sin because the land of Lebanon got stripped naked of its trees. The cities got stripped naked of all their people. The land got stripped naked of its animals. So everything God created, as beautiful and beloved and awesome as it was, they stripped it clean. And so God, in summary, says these leaders are as bad as it gets. These are disgusting villains who rely on debauchery, they rely on adultery, and they're downright repulsive. And the sexual sin, that was really gross. Because what did God make sin for? To take one man, one woman, they get married, it connects them at the heart level, the mind level, the spirit level, and the body level. And if you use it in any other way, it destroys. And they used it to destroy. Now there's one more woe. Number five, verse 18, it says, what use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It's, it's only a cast image, a teacher of lies. The one who crafts it, its shape trusts in it, and it makes worthless idols that can't speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, wake up, or to the mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. The Babylonians had a favorite God. It was like their chief deity. Its name was Marduk. And they worshiped this God that they created. And there was usually three steps. You worship an image. You become like that image. That image destroys you. And God says, that's going to happen. You thought this was going to save you. It's not. All of these idols that are made of stone and wood... No, there's there's nothing there. They represent gods who are inferior. Yeah, sure, does does Satan send spirits to indwell them and confuse people? Yeah, he does. But you can't rely on them. 
And notice in verse 19, he, stops, he starts dropping all these rhetorical questions. He says, hey, can that wood wake up? No, <laughs> that wood's not going to wake up. Well, can that stone come alive and teach you things? No. Well, if you slap it with a coat of gold or a coat of silver, can it save you then? Also, no, it can't. Says, think, but think about the true God, the omnipotent God. What's verse 20 say? It said, but the Lord is in his holy temple. You know where to find him. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. The true God, nobody has to wake him up. Nobody has to make him alive. No one has to add anything to him to make him better. He's always teaching us things. You can't add anything. He's as good as it gets. And he's in his temple waiting. What did it say to do? It said, be silent. Our, our modern translation of the Hebrew be silent would be something like hush or So in summary, idolatry, it doesn't empower you. It's going to destroy you. And we see this in our lives. We, we take things like our jobs and we think, this is going to get me ahead. This is going to define me. This is going to make me who I need to be. But you're one incident away from losing that job permanently. We, we, we look at our stuff, maybe a car, we drop $60,000 on it. And yet we're one car accident away from that sitting in the junkyard. Idols are not ultimate, and if we think they are, we buy the lie and we pay the price. So, these are the five woes we just looked at right here. We're going to throw a picture. This is all the, the oppressive injustice of Babylon. The first two talked about all the unjust economics. Number three was the slave labor and the mistreatment of people. Number four talked about the irresponsibility of the leaders. And number five talked about idolatry. It seems like quite the little conglomeration of sin and it's kind of uncomfortable to read this because it's like man this is vengeance this is gross but when you think about it we should be comforted by this because this is how Mark Scott put it he's a professor I really respect a lot he said this he said God always does vengeance best because he's not partial we never do vengeance best because we don't have all the facts and are often prejudiced so God is bringing vengeance and I would ask you, where do you look for vengeance? Is vengeance in your own hands or are you looking to God to bring vengeance and justice? This is a heavy picture and we got to ask ourselves, how in the world do I respond to something like that that was written 2,600 years ago? Well, here's the beauty of this. When we go to apply it, let's jump to this next slide here. I want to see this real quick. We said earlier that Babylon wasn't unique. Most nations in our world are like Babylon. Most nations eventually become Babylon. And so God's answer to Habakkuk is supposed to stand and ring true to all the later generations. And it rings true to us. It helps us understand our world better. It helps us understand our politics better, our relationships, ourselves, creation, its decay, how to be faithful when we're stuck waiting for justice to come. And so here's a few options that I would challenge you to get ready to respond to this. The first one is to wait on God. We said one of the key questions on how strong is your faith is how well do you wait? So I would say, are you giving God any benefit of the doubt? Or are you only giving yourself the benefit of the doubt? Are you giving him a chance to work and respond when you ask those questions? Are you okay not having the answer that you want as quick as you want it? Because 
if you don't feel like you are, I'd say commit to waiting on God this week. Set time aside and just hush up honorably. Just wait on God. Now, some of you, it might be a little more active. You might need to actually seek God very intentionally. And you got to decide, am I going to choose the way of the puffed up and be about myself, or am I going to choose the way of the faithful? Which way am I going to choose? You may have to confront arrogance in your life as you seek God, because the more you get close to God, the more you see how you're not like him. And you might have to do some confession and some repentance and ask for some forgiveness. I would challenge you, what part of your life can you recenter around Jesus as you seek God? What's the part that you've held back and said, that's mine? And he's saying, no, 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 it's all mine. Hand it over. You're going to be better for it. Faith is an active thing. It's not passive. And the righteous one lives by his faith. So you may need to wait on God. You may need to seek God. Some of you You may need to make God's message plain. You know, we saw that picture of Habakkuk and those tablets making the message really loud. He wanted it to be so clear, God did, that if a runner was running past, they could still read it while they're in motion. And so I would say, you know, Jesus has done so much for us, so much for you, and you kind of function like those tablets. So, do the people around you know that? Like, are you legible? Can people read the hope? Do they see hope? Because if not, how can you live differently when you go to school, when you go to work, when you go to the grocery store? You may need to wait on God, may need to seek God. You may need to make the message plain. Or this one's the one I've been parking on. You may need to lean into the hope of God's woes. You may need to lean into the hope. And if you're justice-oriented like I am, man, I hope this meets you. Because as you start to lament and you turn to God and you offer complaint and you ask the tough questions and you respond in trust and worship, if you're doing that and you're reading verses 6 to 20 that we just read and we just drank from the fire hose, you see, you know what? God saw brokenness thousands of years ago. God still sees our brokenness now. He is bringing justice. We can meditate on that. And I cannot tell you how freeing it is. Because admittedly, when I think about that stat that 87% of our town doesn't know Jesus, that paralyzes me some days. It eats at me that all of these neighbors and these people who are our friends and our family, who our kids go to school with, that we pass on the street, to think that the majority of them have no clue about the true hope, that eats me. But when I reflect on this and I lean into the hope of God's woes, it reminds me, hey, you just are supposed to obey. You be faithful. This doesn't rest on you. You're not letting God down because you were never holding God up. And I need that hope. Maybe you need that hope. Some of you lean into the hope of these woes. Celebrate that since these words were written, Jesus showed up and he followed through and he's gonna show up again. So this week, will you wait on God? Will you seek God? Will you make the hope plainly written on your life? Or will you lean into the hope of these woes? I would challenge you, at least one of those four this week. The last few months have been uh, pretty brutal for my wife's family. Her grandma, who we call Oma, uh, she got really sick. She had heart surgery, uh, got COVID, 
and it got really dicey a few weeks back. Uh, her health started to deteriorate fast, and it's just been kind of one of those rotten processes of watching her body break down, lose her strength, uh, the struggle of long-distance relationships. I mean, there's literally family that, the, you know, her grandparents are in Cleveland, Ohio, and some of the families in Chicago, some in Atlanta, some in North Carolina. I've watched my mother-in-law scramble up there multiple times, and all of us grandkids have this text thread where we're kind of getting the play-by-play -play and praying as specifically as we can. We've watched the healthcare system and the exhaustion of the doctors and nurses make it hard for her to get the care she needs. It's just been awful. And yet, in the middle of all this, we've watched her grandparents, who are, I think, 84 and 86 years old, respectfully. And God has brought so much glory to himself. Um, at one point, she went on a ventilator. They said, when we take her off, she'll either die or she'll breathe, and she's probably gonna die. She didn't, she breathed. We watched family, and they've gotten closure they wouldn't have gotten had she not been at death's door. We've watched her grandma and grandpa lead people to Jesus in that hospital room. Her grandpa had COVID several months ago. He led his roommate to Jesus in the hospital room. A nurse came to know Jesus in that room We've watched other Christians in this hospital get word that, that there's this retired pastor and his wife and they, they've come around and they've just prayed over them. You know, they, they've heard it and they've rallied the body of Christ in this hospital. And it's just been this long process of waiting, seeking, but in the middle of it, making the hope plain and leaning on the hope that God's bringing justice. That this brokenness that will eventually you know, take the life of all of us. We're watching possibly take the life of Sarah's Oma. That doesn't get the final say. So I encourage you, and I'm gonna pray for us, that God will help us to respond to this well. Okay? Jesus, man, this is heavy stuff. It kind of eats me up, Lord. I... Um, God, I too often act like I'm holding you up, like it depends on me, like I'm gonna let you down. And I'm sorry, God. A lot of us are in that spot. God, for so many of us, most of us have a justice orientation in us and you put that inside of us because you're justice oriented. And God, I pray that today that these, these pictures you painted for us, these decisions, you'll help us make them well. God, I, I pray that we can respond and not choose the way of the puffed up and the arrogant, but the way of faithfulness and humility. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us what we need to be able to seek you, to be able to wait on you. I pray that you will make our lives so clear and so bold with your hope that people can't help but see it, even if it scares them sometimes. God, I pray in the long run it'll encourage them. And God, I pray that um, as we read woes like this that were written, God, not to us, but for us, I pray we'll see your hope woven in that, that even in the brokenness of this world and the depravity around us, you've got a good thing going on. Jesus, give us patience until you come back the second time. I would love it if you just came back today. I'm not gonna lie. God, you know what we need. You know where we are. 
we ask that you would go with us this week. In your name we pray, amen.